Welcome. Uh, welcome to those of you who are listening to us by uh, our podcast. You just missed a great set of worship, and uh, I wish you would have been here for that. Love the, I, I just I love all of these guys up here. Love hearing the sound, and uh, I love the love the violin over here too. That's pretty cool. Those of you who are new to City Church, we are so glad that you're here today. We uh, we're starting or we're in the second week of a of a new series, and uh, we are we're talking about. Uh, talking about marriage in this series. A couple years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover article on the subject of marriage. And in it, uh, the article said this. It said, What we found is that marriage, whatever its social, spiritual, or symbolic appeal, is in purely practical terms just not as necessary as it used to be. Neither men nor women need to be married to have sex or companionship or professional success or respect or even children. Now, uh, I suspect that there is absolutely nothing there that is a big surprise to any of you who are even remotely aware of the culture in which we live. Perhaps what is a bigger surprise, though, is that despite all of the criticism of marriage and despite all of the, uh, uh, our attempts to undermine marriage, marriage is still uh, revered and is still desired. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the, uh, the wedding industry now is a $40 billion a year empire. That's a lot of money to spend on something that you really don't care that much about. And forgetting for the moment what you may believe about the rightness of it, couples that are in same-sex relationships are fighting for the right to marry all over the country. That's what's so surprising to me about marriage. Even though you don't need it, people still want it. Now, Christianity would argue that the reason for its enduring popularity is that marriage is divine in its origins. It's not anthropological, it's theological in its origins. Not only did God create it, but He's very clear in His communication with us about His uh, design for marriage. And so in this series, uh, what we're trying to do is understand how God designed marriage so that we can get the most out of our own marriages, whether those marriages are present, whether we're married now, or whether one day we hope to be married in the future. We want to get the most out of those marriages. And so we've been looking at the longest and the most foundational passage in all of Scripture that speaks directly to the issue of marriage. And so if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible, whatever form your Bible comes in, whether it's uh, old school hard copy like mine or or a digital copy, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And, And by the way, as Seth said just a moment ago, we really want to address the issues that you're that you have about marriage. And so if you'd, like to, if you'd like to, you can. You can hashtag to us at, uh, at New Marriage. Or, as Seth said, uh, in, on the back of your program, there's a little prayer request uh, section there. And if you'll write on that and drop that in the, the bucket, uh, the offering bucket, uh, what I'm going to do is the last week of this series, I'm going to just answer questions about marriage. So to be very practical, just answer your questions about marriage. So make sure that you, if you have anything, anonymously, just write it out. I've received some questions that people have, but uh, write those down on the back of that uh, card and drop them in the bucket. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 21. Let's uh, begin, let's read through the passage again that we're looking at. And again, let's start at uh, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and 
to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Because people come in and out uh, during a series like this so frequently, I always think it's important to review because um, there are some things that are absolutely foundational for understanding this passage. And if you don't understand these things, then this passage seems much more controversial than it really is. Um, I want to just quickly review, if I can, just a couple of foundational things that we talked about last week. Here's the first one. The the assumption in this passage uh, passage of Scripture is that you have already responded to the gospel And consequently, you have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living within you. We saw that just a few verses up in verse 17. Some of you guys will remember this, and if you don't, look up there, verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, he says, to be filled uh, with the Spirit. Now, really even more than just having the Spirit, the Apostle Paul is assuming that you are choosing to be filled with the Spirit, which means making a conscious decision to live by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit rather than by your own instincts. And in fact, we said last week that the power for marriage is the Holy Spirit. The reason that's so important is that when you get into some of the controversial roles that this passage describes, and when you get into the concern that a lot of people have about the potential for the abuse of those roles, well, Any potential for abuse is gone when you understand that Paul is assuming that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would never endorse or condemn abusive behavior in any way, shape, or form. Okay, So those are the assumptions. Now, now I'm probably going to remind you of those two assumptions throughout this series because they are so foundational to understanding. You You have to get those right for the rest of this passage to make sense. And honestly, if you have those right, then really there's not really that much that's controversial in and of itself. But I realize that many people forget the context, so we'll keep reviewing that context throughout this series. Now, I promise you I'm going to come back to the intervening verses, but what I want you to do right now is I want you to skip down to verse 31 because I want you to see today something very important, and I want you to see something very relevant about God's design for marriage. As the Apostle Paul, who is the writer of this passage, is quoting in verse 31, he's quoting the Old Testament book of Genesis here. And it comes right after God introduces Adam and Eve for the first time. He's like, he says with a twinkle in his eye to Adam, Adam's just been naming all of the ugly animals (laughs) uh, on the planet. And and God says, I I got somebody I want you to meet. And he introduces him to Eve. And and. He just sees Eve for the first time, and he is so taken by Eve that he declares immediately, let's get married, you know? That's essentially what he says. And God, who is the officiant for the wedding, says in chapter 5, verse uh, 31, he says, for this reason, chapter 5, verse 31, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, what's in view today 
is this little phrase, uh, be united. You might underline that in your Bible, or you might make a note of this someplace. Um, That little phrase, be united, is actually one word in the Greek language. It's the word proskalao, proskalao in Greek. And it denotes two things that are so intertwined that you literally can't separate them. That's why they're both in one word. And those two things are first, sexual intercourse, and the second is uh, commitment. Boy, some people just woke up at that moment when I said that. It was like, what? Uh, It might be surprising to you. Uh, to know that the Bible is very straightforward about sex and specifically about the fact that God created sex. It was his idea in the first place. And it legitimately, uh, you could say that sex is an act of worship um, because God commands husbands and wives to have sex. And obedience is always the most important form of worship. And so very legitimately, you could say that sex uh, with your spouse is an act of worship. And in my house, I always talk to my wife about the importance of us obeying God and, and worshiping and, and obeying him a lot. And so we, we do that. In, in fact, I want to tell you something. Do you know something? Um, I want you to know this. that There is not enough positive talk about sex in the church. Uh, there's really not. In fact, I would tell you, the st- studies uh, have shown that kids raised in church overwhelmingly believe that their church is anti-sex. Because all they recall hearing in their church were messages about not having uh, sex. So here's something that I want you to know uh, about City Church. And you can tweet this. All you want to tweet this. That City Church is for sex. In fact, we are for lots of great sex. Now you go post that on Facebook somewhere. And see how many likes you get on that. I hope that goes viral. City Church is pro-sex. Tweet that someplace. Now, a little parenthesis here, okay, as we talk about this. Just a little parenthesis. There was another church in the area that I, we'll put it that way. There's another church in the area that I pastored for a short period of time. Uh, And every time that I used the word sex in that church, I got emails from nervous moms and grandmothers, sometimes dads, mostly moms and grandmothers, uh, about the fact that there were children in the service. And they were so concerned that there were children in the service hearing about sex. And my answer to that is, and it has always been, even when my kids were much younger, is that when they hear about sex in the church, either they're young enough that it's going to go way over their heads, they're not even going to know what you're talking about, or they're going to ask you, Mom, Dad, what is sex? And they get a chance to hear from you about God's perspective on sex. Now, after all, would you, would you rather them hear about sex at school first and have to undo everything wrong that they hear about sex at school? Or would you rather them get a biblical perspective from the start about sex from their church and from you? Which would you rather have happen? And moms, I want to tell you something. and You need to hear this. Uh, If you have kids, especially if you have boys, I want you to know this, that your kids are hearing about sex from their friends way sooner And much more frequently than you think they are. And dads, I would say this to you. The sooner that you can begin a dialogue with your kids, especially your sons, dad. 
The sooner you can begin a dialogue with them, the better it will be for your sons and their relationship to sex. Okay? Now, it's important for them, it's important for all of us to remember that in spite of the ways that sex has been perverted and distorted and used in ways that damage and that degrade people, sex is still good and is still a godly gift uh, from, from God to humanity. And it's an important and powerful part of expressing intimacy in a marriage relationship, okay? So I want you to understand that, that this word, praskalao, it, it, it denotes first sexual intercourse. But it also denotes uh, another word that you, it's so uh, intertwined that you can't separate it into a different word. And that is uh, the word commitment. Uh, praskalao denotes commitment. In fact, the word praskalao actually means to be glued to, uh, to be permanently uh, bound uh, to be joined with someone else. And so the use of this word proskalao in this passage, be united, the use of that word in this passage and in the larger context leads us to three inescapable, but I will also tell you not terribly popular conclusions about marriage. And I want to talk about those this morning. The first one is just this, that the basis for marriage uh, between a man and a woman is lifetime commitment, not present feelings. Let me say it again. The basis for marriage between a man and a woman, this is what Praskalao is, is conveying, that the basis for marriage between man and a woman is a lifetime commitment, not present feelings. And again, I, you know, I just say, I realize that is not terribly popular uh, in, a culture, in a culture like ours where we would much rather talk about uh, things like self-actualization and self-fulfillment and being independent. We're commitment-phobic as a culture. Would you agree with that? I mean, uh, seriously, we, even on our phones, we, take, we have to have call waiting so that we can take other phone calls while we're on a phone call because we don't want to completely commit to one phone call. we got to make sure we can get another phone call in there. And, when, and then, and then we've, we, we read texts and emails while we're in personal conversations with other people because we don't want to just commit to that. Uh, we got to have access to other things that are coming in. We're commitment-phobic. And so making a lifetime commitment to another person seems absolutely nuts. And it's why the idea... Of, I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but one of the new ideas out there is marriages with renewable contracts. And the idea is that you, you, you make a commitment for three years. And then at the end of that three-year period of time, you kind of see how you feel about re-upping for another three-year period of time. This is why it's, the, the, the commitment phobia is why that idea has gotten traction in our culture. And it's also why living together uh, is so popular in our culture. You know, it's, it's kind of a way to, it's a way to say, well, we're, we're, we're more than dating. We're not just dating. It's more than dating. But you can, you can, you can, you can do that without having to be all in uh, with the kind of commitment that marriage requires. Now, I want you to understand that I, I realize that there are a lot of people who would argue that the only difference between living together and marriage is a piece of paper. And I want to give you an example of that. This is a conversation uh, between two, two young women. You would not know any of these young women. It, just, it was a conversation between two young women in a question and answer kind of forum on the internet. And one of the young women uh, says this. Here, here's her question. She says, 
my boyfriend and I have been together for four years. They've been, it's been an utterly amazing four years. We have a strong bond. We do everything together. We hardly fight. We respect each other. But when I bring up marriage, he says, it's just a piece of paper. He's 22, and I'm 23. Is he just young? Should I accept this relationship since it's worked out so far? Or am I right uh, for wanting to marry? It's a fascinating question that she asks. First, it's fascinating that she wants to get married despite the fact that everything is going well in her relationship. She still wants to get married. Isn't that interesting? But I also think it would be interesting just to ask the question, is it possible that the reason that you guys, that you say that you don't fight much in your marriage, is it possible that the reason you don't fight much is because both of you are afraid that if you do fight, what will happen on the other end? Anyway, here's the answer that another young woman gave her. The answer is she's, she gives is this. Marriage is just a piece of paper. If you're living together and happy, why waste the unnecessary funds for a piece of paper? Now look, I, I, I really don't want to uh, demean anybody who would say that and, and who uses this as an argument. I'm not trying to demean them in any way, shape, or form. But I think the, the answer to the young lady's question about why you would, why you would spend the money uh, to get married, to, to get that piece of paper. The answer to that question is that that piece of paper is a tangible demonstration of a person's future commitment to stay together even when he or she does not feel happy. Right? Because that was her question. If you're happy, why... If you're happy, why spend the money on that license? It's because the license signifies that you're willing to stay married even. You're willing to stay together even when you don't feel happy. And I feel incredibly confident in telling you that there are times that you're going to be very disappointed with your spouse. And there are going to be times in a marriage where you're going to be very unhappy in your marriage. Don't you see? Go ahead and put, whoever's got the phone call, go ahead and put them on speakerphone. I think they could benefit from uh, hearing this. Uh, don't you see that, here's what I want you to understand. Is, don't you see that marriage is not the same as living together? Marriage is a, it's a, it's a far superior relationship to living with someone else. Living together is a human attempt uh, at intimacy. Marriage, though, is an otherworldly commitment to intimacy. It's a commitment to intimacy. The promise in marriage has nothing to do, I want you to get this, the promise in marriage has nothing to do with how you feel today. The promise in marriage is a commitment for the future, that, that regardless of how you feel, that you will be there in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 35 years, in 50 years if you long enough. You will be there regardless of how you feel to meet the other person's needs. It's like you, you, you see, you're, you're making an appointment with your spouse for the future regardless of how you feel in any given moment. It's a commitment. That's what this word is signifying. And the reason that the paper is important is that it makes it legal. It makes it binding. It makes it public. 
Now look, I'm, I, I want you to understand, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be... I'm not trying to be a buzzkill for people who are living together. I get why the idea of living together is appealing and and why I get the fact that to some people uh, it seems like a very prudent step given the devastation that they've experienced uh, in their own personal lives and in their own families from their parents' divorces perhaps. But out of compassion, I, I would be quick to add that because marriage is a divine institution and it's not human in origin, if you're working at cross-purposes with the one who designed marriage, your relationship is one day going to crash ashore against the rocks of his design. And this is why statistics show that living together is a terrible trainer for marriage because you're building a foundation based on Human selfishness, the unwillingness to commit selflessly to another person. And statistically, very few couples survive long enough to ever get married. And I'm just going to say it, that women are usually the ones on the receiving end of the most pain when that relationship ends. And so out of compassion, I, 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 just, I would just say to you that you need to understand that God wants more and he wants better for your relationship than even you do. And so he has, he has designed marriage so that it's a, it's a commitment. And any arrangement that tries to avoid this legally binding public commitment to another person falls woefully short of God's design for marriage. And it actually puts you on a very different trajectory from a meaningful and sustainable marriage. Okay? The basis for marriage is is commitment between a man and a woman. Now, here's a second inescapable conclusion that this word, proskalao, leads us to. And this isn't popular either. That sexual intimacy is to be expressed only in the context of of marital commitment. Uh, Sexual intimacy is to be expressed only in the context of marital commitment. And as I said, I I know that's not popular, and I know that probably makes me sound like some old uh, fuddy-duddy pastor. Um, Look, I'm I'm just the messenger. And if you want to, you can have that out with God. Um, I'm not trying to be a fuddy-duddy. I'm just trying to save you a lot of pain. But I want you to understand again that the way God created sex is very different than how our culture views sex and uses sex. And when you use it outside of the context of God's design, it's a recipe for great pain. Sex, sex, you see, as God designed it, this is important that you get this, okay? There's a little nuance here. I want you to make sure that you get this. Is that sex cannot create intimacy. It can only grow out of intimacy, okay, as, as God designed it. In other words, you can't use sex to, to create intimacy with someone. It can only grow out of the intimacy that already exists. And sex is this incredibly vulnerable act in which you make yourself uh, naked and vulnerable for, before another person, emotionally and spiritually and physically. And you take enormous risks 
with your emotional well-being and with the very delicate state of your soul when you're sexually intimate with another person? Why do something so vulnerable and so powerful with a person who's unwilling to make a commitment to you for a lifetime? Now, don't think that I don't get how countercultural um, what I'm saying is, because we live in a culture that says condoms first and commitment second. I, I understand that. But if you, get, if you get intimacy and sex out of order by trying to create intimacy with sex instead of letting sex grow out of intimacy that comes from total vulnerability and trust in the context of a lifetime commitment, then you're setting yourself up either for heartbreak in the present or for significant problems in the future. Let me just talk about heartbreaking about heartbreak in the present. I, I, I listened to this past week. I actually watched a very moving testimony from a young woman who um, had described the heartbreak of learning that her boyfriend, who um, had sworn his commitment to her, she described the heartbreak when she learned that he just couldn't ruin his future by marrying her when she found out that she was pregnant with his child. Which prompted the first of three abortions that she would end up having, all of which had brought her great heartbreak. And if it's not heartbreak in the present, then it's relationship problems in the future. You have no idea how many couples I've counseled over the years that as we uh, talked honestly and openly over a period of time that we began to trace back where their problems began and you have no idea how many couples their problems began with sexual sin before marriage and often with each other but they, they covered over all of the feelings from that with other stuff. And over time, that foundation, see there's trust issues that come up. And over time, that foundation just began to crumble. And I would suspect that there are a lot of couples here who are married, and uh, you probably got this marriage sex thing out of order yourselves. And even as I say this, you know, you probably never talked about it in your marriage. And you wonder, well, you know, what, what does that mean for us? Does that mean we can't have a happy marriage? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But I, w- I, would, I would tell you this, that your marriage, um, it really can't grow past the trust issues that were developed in your dating life unless you deal with this. Your relationship ceased to grow in some of the meaningful ways that God intends for a relationship to grow. It, it's sort of stunted if you started the sex thing prior to the commitment thing of marriage. And the very best thing that you can do, I, I know how crazy this sounds, but you can't believe the uh, effect that I've seen this have on couples. 
the very best thing that you can do, if that's true of you, the very best thing that you can do is go back to the beginning of your relationship. If it's been 20 years, go back to the beginning. If it's been 30 years, go back to the beginning. And own the wrongness of sex before marriage. Uh, own it with each other. And, and own it before God together as a couple. And I have seen this make enormous differences in marriages, even after 20 or 30 years of marriage. When a man, and I, I always advise the man to take the lead, when a man takes his wife and he says to her, I apologize for the fact that I used sex without commitment in our relationship. Um, and then, besides just owning it with her, that he takes her by the hand and they acknowledge and confess this sin of sex before commitment, before God. It goes a long way, a long way to reestablishing trust and rebuilding the foundation that needed to be there in the beginning to make a sustainable, healthy marriage. I, I need to close, but I, I want to just, this last point, and as it happens, this may be the most controversial thing that I'm going to say today. But this word proskalao leads us to one last inescapable conclusion. When you take that word proskalao and you combine it with the context of this passage, it leads us to this inescapable conclusion that marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman. And it is difficult to miss that in this passage. The text says a man leaves his father and mother to be united to his wife. And that word wife is a word that, a Hebrew word that always refers to a woman in the Bible. Now, I realize that there are those who would say, well, Paul's just using, this is just a cultural reference uh, from Paul's day. Uh, People back then weren't as sophisticated about uh, human relationships as we are today. Um, Well, here's the problem. They were. Uh, Homosexuality was very common in ancient Greek and Rome. Paul was very familiar with homosexuality. It was very prevalent. It was also very public. And yet, even in that context, Paul says, a marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to just uh, be very straightforward with you here. Uh, there, honestly, there's a part of me that wishes uh, that this weren't the case. Because I really don't relish the hard conversations that this, uh, that this brings up with people. And I will tell you, I don't want to be aligned with the likes of people who degrade and assault and hate and make fun of people who identify themselves as gay. Uh, I have uh, enormous compassion for these men and women. Um, many, In fact, many have been uh, or are close friends of uh, Amy's and, and mine. And I like them and uh, I enjoy them and I have seen their struggles. And I can see past what they describe as their sexual identity. And I can love them and I can even be able to celebrate them as people. 
But in no way can I agree that the Bible uh, teaches that homosexuality fits under God's design for marriage. Uh, it just is clear that it doesn't. Now, look, I want you to understand, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm not aligning myself with a political party when I say that. All I'm telling you is what the Bible says. And that's not to say that people don't have the freedom in, in, in our country. It's not to say that they don't have the freedom to do things that are contrary to the Bible. They certainly do. Of course they do. But what, what I am trying to get you to understand is that basically there are three human institutions that stand completely apart uh, from all of the other human institutions because they didn't evolve out of human thinking. They are these, family, church, and state. Do you realize that? Family, church, and state. Nothing, there's nothing in the Bible about running schools, nothing directly about running school, schools or community centers or art galleries. There are all sorts of great human institutions that the Bible says nothing about. Why? Because God didn't directly invent those institutions. But God did invent marriage. And when you enter into marriage, you enter in under his authority. Whether you will or not, you still enter in under his authority. He invented family as the social fabric of the world that we live in. He invented the state, in other words, government, to be his servants, to make just laws, to uphold peace, and to uphold laws that allow all people to prosper and flourish as, as the leaders of our government lead and as they govern over his creation. But, and this isn't a warning as much as it's a statement of fact, a society that chooses to run afoul of God's design for marriage for its own ends and its, in its own wisdom is a culture that will soon find itself sinking into the quicksand of moral relativism. That's just a fact. That's not a warning. That's just, it's just a fact. Now, don't you dare walk out of here today and say that City Church hates people who are gay. Because that would be a sin on your part. In fact, I would argue that I have said things today that are as uh, troublesome for heterosexuals as I have for people who would identify themselves as homosexuals. We love people who are heterosexuals that are in sexual sin, and we love people who identify themselves as homosexuals who are in sexual sin. Because none of us in this room are perfect. Every single one of us are equals at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. None of us has anything to look down our nose at anybody else about. So don't you dare walk out of here and say that we don't love people who are gay. We are for people who identify themselves as gay. We disagree with them on the issue of marriage and homosexuality. But we are for those people. And we care deeply about those people. As much as we do anyone else. Now, I don't want to end on such an ominous note this morning. What I want you to walk away with today is a sense of the superiority of God's design for marriage over uh, any other human alteration of God's design for marriage. Marriage is a promise. It's a commitment 
to be there in the future, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how your spouse feels, regardless of their health, regardless of their wealth, regardless of anything like that. It's a promise. It's a commitment. And that is far superior to any other human relationship. And in this, it mimics perfectly Christ's death on the cross. God made a commitment to humanity way back in the Old Testament that in spite of how humanity had responded to him, that he was going to redeem humanity. Even at his own cost, at great expense to him, while we were still enemies, he made that commitment. And he never broke his promise. God, in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, came and lived and died on the cross for my sins and for yours. That's a commitment right there. That's a commitment. That's grace. It's how any of us here have a relationship with God is through grace. Because none of us are worthy of a relationship with God. We were going to close this morning uh, by doing communion. We're going to put that off till next week. Dana, we're going to put that off till next week. But I would like for Dana and the band to come back up. And they're going to close us in a song. Um, you know, I got, I, I know, I got a little long today because there were, there were some things that I just felt like had to be said. I apologize for getting long. I apologize for everybody that gets inconvenienced because of this. But we'll do communion next week. I want you to walk away understanding the importance of commitment and how God modeled commitment to us in the form of Jesus Christ on the cross. He never broke his promise. And that's what marriage, that's what that piece of paper, that's what that piece of paper signifies. That you're never going to break your promise. That you'll be there. Even at great expense to you. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we come at a passage like this with great humility because none of us live up to this. Not a single one of us. We are all broken. We don't rejoice in our brokenness. We rejoice in the fact that you're able to put broken people back together again. Lord, I want to pray for those people this morning that, uh, that, would I, that, that are struggling with um, heterosexual sexuality. I want to pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a point that they understand that in your great wisdom and um, goodness that you've given sex as a gift and that no matter how broken they are and how they've used it, that you're able to heal and bring them to a point that they ask for that. And then, Lord, for those that are struggling this morning um, with issues related to homosexuality, Lord, I, I want to pray for them. You love them deeply. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place that they recognize that you have given sex as a great gift. But that when it's, when it's used in a way that's outside of the way that you have designed it, that it brings enormous pain. And Lord, would you just gently and lovingly convict them of that? I pray that City Church would be a place that communicates our great love for people regardless of their issues. Because we thank you so much for your grace. We wouldn't be here without it. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.